0: Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast I'm Martin Rogers here with Steve O'Neill and Akash Pan Welcome Steve Thanks Martin Welcome Akash Cheers, good to be back So first of all Akash, can you uh, kick off discussing the situation with the Conservative Party leadership?
1: So the uh, second round of the uh, Tory leadership election The the second round of votes among MPs has uh, just been announced uh, Literally within the last five minutes as we're recording this um, and uh, people no doubt will, will, will have seen the news for themselves. But the big, the big development is that Dominic Robb so the uh, hardest line candidate, the only candidate who is sort of flirting with uh, seeing no deal as, as 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 maybe not his preferred option, but as a reasonably. Uh, reasonably decent option from his perspective Um, also of course talked about uh, proroguing Parliament potentially in order to achieve uh, Brexit at the end of October he has been eliminated Um, and I think we'll see what happens to 30 uh, votes that he received, there'll be a a third round coming up within the next few days, I can't remember the exact date of of that vote but um, one would uh, one, one would speculate that quite a decent chunk of those votes will transfer to Boris Johnson, who won 126 uh, votes anyway. He's extended his lead. Um, he's 80, 80 votes ahead um, of second place Hunt, and then Michael Gove and Rory Stewart um, are close behind. And Sajid Javid just scraped into the final, uh, into the next round. So. I mean overall it really feels like uh, Boris is to lose um, the the big question is still who's going to make it through to the final two to the members ballot.
0: Thank you very much Akesh. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss moderate politics in the political centre so Steve who is the best candidate from a moderate point of view both in terms of the overall winner of the uh, contest but also in terms of the last two who go to the with the members? Well, I
2: think moderates should be very happy, first of all, that Rab has dropped out. He was clearly the most um, extreme candidate on Brexit and talking about things like WTO terms being a, a pretty good option. Um, in terms of moderates, it, it seems the two big issues of the, this leadership campaign so far have been obviously on Brexit, as we've spoken about, but the other big one has been on tax. Um, so, looking across those issues, uh, it's fairly clear that Robbie Stewart is the most moderate on Brexit. So he's talked about Citizens' Assembly to find a way through. He's clearly the one who's thinking about compromise and maybe a centre ground on that.
0: Um,
2: on other issues, like tax, all the candidates have, have taxed uh, to the right quite sharply. to um, so in my kind of list of those who might be candidates for the, the sort of tag of most moderate Tory leadership candidate, uh, I had uh, Jeremy Hart and Mike Gove. Um, both have talked about quite big tax changes and tax cuts so Hunt's talking about cutting corporation tax to a really quite low level to so 12.5% that's comparatively very very low and Gove is talking about replacing VAT with the USR sales tax which is hard to tell how progressive or regressive that would be um, so while Stuart is probably the best candidate for moderates um, it's quite hard to pick the other ones
1: On the Brexit question I, I, I think um, as, as you said Steve um Rory Stewart is dis- distinguishing himself from, from all the other candidates in uh, taking us off the line. Um, so from that perspective, you'd say he's the, he's the, the, the moderate champion, if you like, remaining or the, or the one that centrists might favour. But it's possible, don't you think, that um, if Boris wins it with probably a big mandate and more trust from the pro-Brexit side, he might actually be better placed to, in the end, deliver a compromise. Um, I think if if Stuart were to win it, it doesn't look that likely, um, I think he would win it already um, without the trust of um you know the 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 pro brexit pro no deal types within the parliamentary party and the party at large um and if he just tries to get through essentially to his amazed deal again well it seems quite likely to me that he'll just uh fail and then well who knows maybe we're into no deal by accident or an election it could go in various ways i just have a sense that Johnson, because you can't really pin him down what he, what does he actually truly believe in, um, he'll talk up his no-deal credentials to, to win it, um, but he's probably going to be in a better position to, to deliver a compromise ultimately.
2: Mm. Yeah, so I think there's an argument for that, looking back at the experience Theresa May had, because obviously being a you caught with the softest of remainers before the referendum and then trying to compromise on Brexit. That didn't work. And people have speculated quite a lot about whether a, a harder Brexiteer could kind of pivot. Um, I guess that's the most hopeful interpretation of a Boris Johnson hmm. Brexit strategy.
0: I suppose the. the and it is actually a very interesting question because if the pro Brexit. MPs, or let's say not just the pro-Brexit MPs, but the hardest Brexit MPs, if they own the decision, if they have their champion, they have, by and large, I mean Steve Baker, uh, Jacob rees they've come out very strongly in favour of Boris Johnson. Now, whether that's because they think he's going to win anyway, so they want to be able to influence or tame his um, his actions, or whether that's because they believe he is a true Brexiteer Mm. um, I suppose it's difficult to see but that added to having a mandate that's where people will say rightly the arithmetic won't change in Parliament well it might change within the Conservative Party if they feel like their champion has delivered something although if they feel that their champion once again has deserted them has been um, turns traitor on them that would be interesting to see how that goes as well Steve it's interesting that uh, as well Matt, Han- Matt Hancock backing
2: Boris Johnson mm-hmm. which really surprised some people I, I, he would have been perhaps the one behind Rory Stewart as the most moderate given mm-hmm. the noises he's made um, and it might be what we're going to start to see is kind of the battle for Boris's soul coming up if mm-hmm. it is between people who think that he could go either way he's quite flaky as we've, we've seen maybe maybe we are going to see something
0: like that mm-hmm. As we talked in the previous podcast about the difference between the um, relative and absolute uh, att- sort of attachment to being a moderate, whether that's uh, a different question. Whether someone like Stuart is a um, temperamentally more attracted to a moderate form of sort of old school conservatism, traditional sort of unideological conservatism, whereas the um, I'm sure that Boris Johnson, who has secured the support of the likes of Marc Francois, has probably given more thro- full throated support to some of the more traditional, sorry, untraditional dogmatic conservatism, or ideological at least. Yes,
2: Stuart certainly is making a thing of being a uh, dispositional moderate, talking to people, talking about compromise. Um, he's really quite owning that, that mm. ground. Uh, I think Jeremy Hunt does a pretty good job mm. the way he presents himself. Um, he seems to manage to be all things for well, people a little bit. He mm-hmm. talked up no deal at times or flirted with the idea, but also is very moderate on other issues. I mean, he's quite um, fairly strong in health and social care, talking about unfinished business as reforming social care, which seems to mean a more generous offer in some way. Mm-hmm. So um, there's certainly a couple of them are quite dispositionally moderate. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so um, I wanted to talk about being part of the politically homeless. So uh, we've talked about the sort of politics of the moderates, but I want to widen out to talk about the political home. So uh, David Cowling directed me to some work that Lord Ashcroft has done on this. So on the 1st of April, he posted something which, as we've seen in politics these days, means it could be completely out of date, and things have moved on an enormous amount. But some things that I thought were very interesting on Ashcroft's piece around um, new parties, centre ground uh, similar sort of issues that we're talking about Uh, 49% of those respondents felt that I don't feel that my opinions are represented by any of the current political parties so it's a very interesting starting position now I'm interested in this because of Johnson's assumed let's say electability and electoral reach then, so 41% of those who felt that the parties didn't represent them, 41% felt it was because the parties were moved to the extremes, whereas an almost identical 38% said it's because they were too similar. Um, but this is not necessarily in terms of policy, this is also about backgrounds and, for want of a better word, attitudes, I, saying one thing and doing another comes up quite strongly. And I wanted to read out a quote in full. Politics is now filled with people who went to private school, did politics at university, and at 21 or 22 get a job up in the Gilded Palace, and they've never bought a pint of milk or had a mortgage in their life. They're completely out of touch with what goes on in reality. And I thought that um, there's been some discussion about whether Stuart should be in the final two, because he, like Johnson, is an old Etonian, um, so I thought that's quite interesting and whether that would translate potentially into some support for someone like Jarvid. Now I also wanted to talk briefly about some of the things that the voters said about the parties themselves. So the public said that the Tories were for themselves out of touch, untrustworthy, and that Labour were untrustworthy, dangerous and confused. Now this is what I found fascinating. Conservative voters are okay, talking about the Conservative Party. Out of touch confused and for themselves, whereas Tory voters saw Labour as dangerous and untrustworthy. Labour voters saw Conservatives as out for themselves, out of touch and untrustworthy, while Labour voters saw Labour as for the many, but also confused and weak. Now, one thing that's come up time and time again in this is trustworthiness. In the first section about being political, homeless, we talked about Um, saying one thing and doing another and they're all from the same background and then how the public feel they feel politics are sort of untrustworthy and out of touch the focus group that uh, Ashcroft did about the conservative leadership candidates amongst Tory members was that uh, enormous support for um, the need for a sort of personality to bring to the uh, Brexit negotiations, but also sincerity and honesty. Uh, there was a great deal of support for Johnson amongst these people, but he was also seen as a liar and a cheat. Um, one sentence that struck me was one consistent theme was that people were interested first and foremost in the candidate's apparent character and competence. So I ask you, Given all of these things that we've talked about, is Boris Johnson's electability a bit of an illusion? He's got the highest name recognition, but he went to uh, what, as the focus group said, a uh, private school. He had a job in the Gilded Palace. He's not struggled. He's notoriously dishonest. And given that UK polling report data shows that the uptick in Conservative support if Johnson, his leader, comes mainly from Brexit party supporters coming to the Conservatives, is there a bit of a, um, a danger that his powers
2: are overestimated? Probably is a danger his powers are underestimated. Well, I'd say partly is that he's not had a good couple of years. So in some ways it's quite surprising that he is so popular with Tory members. Oh, I, I certainly was surprised. Um, but just to pick up a couple of things that you said, character is probably something he Strongly on. I mean, he's a big character, a noticeable character. So I can see that uh, being something in his favour. Competence. He was had terrible headlines as a foreign secretary. It's hard to see um, how many people could see him highly on competence. I haven't seen any polling on that. Um, and on the private school thing, that might be a danger if he was contrasted to people that. Clearly didn't have that background, but both in this broadly, both in this leadership context and in the leaders, leader of the opposition, he will be against people from a similar background who those who those um, criticisms could stick on to.
0: Mm.
1: The, the, these polls before um, before the leadership election is even concluded about how people, um, you know, not talking about. Conservative Party members, but the public at large, who they would vote in a hypothetical matchup between, say, Boris and and, and Corbyn, those kind of questions. I mean, I think you always have to take that data with with a pinch of salt. I mean, people people choose who they're going to vote for um, once they've seen um, somebody in position as a leader. Um, And I think... Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, on, on the specific points um, you were just talking about, um, I mean, he won He won in London twice. Um, that was before his time as a, yes, not particularly successful foreign secretary. But even back then, I mean, he wasn't seen as a particularly... Um, you know, trustworthy, um, stable, uh, safe pair of hands kind of politician. He was a big character, he had charisma, he had something different. And, and it can be quite difficult to put your finger on it, but there obviously is something there that connects with a lot of people. Um, yeah, even in those, at that time in, in London, um, despite his many obvious flaws as a person and a politician.
2: So the other thing to mention um, when we're talking about the perceptions of privilege is the conversation that the Tory leadership contenders are having on tax. And it's worth noting that on, on that particular issue, they are moving quite decidedly towards uh, low tax to the right, you could say. So Boris Johnson's promising around £10 billion of tax cuts for high earners. Savage Javid is promising additional tax cuts for the highest earners. And Jeremy Hunt's talking about some quite high-watering corporation tax cuts. Um, and while those things may go down very well with Tory party members, uh, a public who perceives their leaders as elite and out of touch um, might not look very favourably very, very on that.
1: And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the, the radical nature of some of those um, proposals. I mean Dominic Raab out now, but he was talking about a 5p reduction in the basic rate of income tax. Um, so he was making a, a pitch for a slightly different demographic uh, group, but which also would have been very expensive and, and would have implied some mm-hmm. hefty spending cuts. Um, and then on the other side of it, you've got Michael Gove, who um, I think he said he won't give the already wealthy another tax cut. Um, and he's talked about replacing VAT um, with a with sales tax. Um, so he's he's going for something quite different on on that issue at least. I mean, I suppose the question is whether all anyone is noticing is the is, is Brexit at the mm. moment. Um, but yeah, if you if you look at that range of proposals, I mean, that, there's some interesting mm. ideas in there. Whatever you think about mm. it, you know, yeah. there's some big there's some big proposals for reform there. And
2: there's something quite Trumpian about this in that um, conservatives traditionally care about budget deficits and austerity. And look at some numbers you mentioned. Now, Rab's gone, but you mentioned that it's in the scales of 30-odd billion tax cuts we're talking about. Uh, He was talking about Johnson, 10 billion. These things blow the budget deficit out of the water. And so we should have decided to shift away from fiscal responsibility and towards what looked like quite ideological proposals.
0: Now, of course, the conservatives are not the only party having a Leadership election at the moment. So, Steve, can you tell us a little bit more about the candidates to be the leader of the Lib Dems?
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, the front runner is Jo Swinson, and she's being challenged by Ed Davey. Um, uh, and there are two candidates who, so on the face of it, look quite like, different. Ed is a sort of man in his uh, middle age, Jo's a relatively young candidate. Uh, and a woman um, but actually it's got quite big similarities too both of them actually served as coalition ministers in the business department Ed Davey then went on to be the energy secretary um, back when we had an energy department um, and, and sort of I, I've had a, some a little bit of personal experience of both of them and actually I find them similar in a way that they've they both have modes where they can be quite campaign oriented very passionate kind of campaigners. Um, Ed, particularly around the climate change issues, Joe, was a very strong campaigner on uh, equality issues and women's issues. Um, but at the same time, they were quite technocratic, thoughtful kind of ministers. So it'll be interesting to see what, um, what qualities come out both as the campaign goes on and as um, one of them, probably Joe, as a front-runner right now, comes out uh, as leader. Turkish.
0: Could we broaden this out to talk about the the state of the centre widely? Uh, we've had the we've got the Liberal Democrat leadership election ongoing, the return of the Lib to prominence after the European election results, and the ongoing um, travails of the party. I think we're currently called Change UK, uh, formerly the Independent Group. So. Akash, could you sum up the state of the political centre for us at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, last time we we, uh, spoke on this podcast, um, it was the the day after the um, European Parliament elections, I think, and the the ramifications of that were just beginning to be felt. But yeah, I mean, it was obvious that was a great result for the Liberal Democrats, as had been the local election results a few weeks prior, and a, a disaster for... Change UK now independent group for change. I believe, um, given the the high um, the, the high aspirations they had to become the dominant party of the centre, they didn't just want to be another small party. Um, and since uh, since the open elections, yet yeah, the group of eleven that formed uh, the Change UK group um, has split, and the big. The biggest name among those, Chico has of course defected to the Liberal Democrats, which is, I think, a big coup actually for Vince Cable's uh, party. I don't know if it's so much to do with him and his leadership, but um, but but that's a real sign that I think the, the Lib Dems are back. I mean, I remember back in the in the, in the nineties when you'd have um, conservative MPs. Uh, leaving the, the, the sinking ship before nineteen ninety seven and some of them went to Labour, some of them went to the Lib Dems, but you know, people don't wanna people people who have aspirations for a long career in politics, they uh, they, they won't go to a party that they think has has no hope. So uh, that in itself I think is is is, is quite a big uh, a, a big sign of, of the success of the Liberal Democrats. Um, and then Change UK itself or soubri has been uh, left sort of holding the, the reins of that party. Um, I think there's a big question whether it really survives um, as, as, as a party. It's not clear um, with the five remaining MPs what their distinctive offer is to voters anymore. Um, the rest of the rest of them are just independent backbenchers now. There's speculation some of them might end up joining the Lib Dems as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's been obviously a very good 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 couple of months for the Liberal Democrats.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with all, all that. Um, one of the interesting things that Chuck has moved second move of the year throws up. Uh, I think it's generally thrown up when MPs are moving parties around. It's people with very different histories uh, are on the same team now and. It, it, sort of, it, seems, it seems sort of fading in the memory but of course the coalition is still a sort of cloud that hangs over Lib Dems it's quite interesting to think about what Joe and Ed are saying about that and equally what, how Chucker is sort of triangulating what was quite vocal opposition to a, a Tory-Lib Dem coalition and to now being part of Lib Dems but just on what um, the two Lib Dem leadership candidates say so Joe's been talking about quote own the failures of coalition, um, so I think that is more sort of departing, realizing that things were got wrong, and, and we should sort of say where those were. Ed uh, Davis is something like quite different. He said that they played the politics wrong, which sounds like um, didn't get the credit where it deserved. And he actually used the example of some of the income tax cuts for lower and as something that the Tories did the credit for. So it's interesting to see how all that plays into um, what could be. Yeah, more MPs potentially from the left sort of edging toward the Lib Dems depending on what the other Change UK MPs do. Mm.
1: Yeah, and there's also, it seems, um, a bit of a difference, at least in how, how it's been reported, um, between the two candidates on whether they'd be open to to, to working with other parties, maybe having um, maybe local election packs or potentially, I suppose, even, even a bigger, higher level of, of, of cooperation. Um, and Joe Spencer apparently is is, is more favourable to the mm. idea of of working with other um, pro pro Remain pro second uh, referendum parties if that's if that's the best way to deliver on that.
2: Yeah, well, she's actually said she's talked about offering some kind of electoral pact to stop Brexit. Now, whether that means something with the Change UK and the Greens or, or rebellious Labour MPs, if we're talking about general election, I don't know. Um, when where was asked a similar question about coalitions, he, I think, made some flippant comment about, oh, look at the other lot, they're also terrible talking about Labour and Tories. Um, so he seems to dodge the question for now. it would be interesting to see where, where that mm. goes.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and you mentioned the Greens there. I mean, they obviously had a, a, a pretty good European election result as well. It's, it's quite interesting, I mean, whether one considers them a centrist party i mean they obviously have similarity with the liberal democrats Mm -hmm. and indeed change uk on the question of of brexit um but maybe more more, in in a a bigger sense they're they're quite a leftist party actually on economic issues they obviously have a very distinct profile around. Around environmental issues. So, I wonder how much similarity there is between those two parties if we were talking about a, a broader pact in a, in a general election, say.
2: Mm. Yeah, another way of putting that is actually how much of a centrist party the Lib Dems, because on the kind of uh, assessment when you look at kind of liberal to authoritarian issues, actually, and particularly with Brexit being a sort of example around that, Brexit migration for your example, the Lib Dems are kind of quite an extreme liberal party, which makes them similar to the Greens in some ways. Um, but what, what, what kind of what is the centre now then becomes quite a confusing question because the centrist position on Europe is one of the more extreme positions on Europe post hmm. the referendum. So it's quite confusing to uh, hmm. to one pick.
0: Hmm. I suppose to end on the question of. The future of centrism, Steve. Can you tell us what lessons everyone should take from Change UK's experience and um, the prospects for sort of new parties, new movements in the centre ground? Oh I mean, yes, yeah, it's a it's a, um,
2: it's a hard question. We discussed it last time as to whether Change UK were just doomed by history and bad luck in terms of the timing of the Lib Dem fight back, uh, in terms of how that all played out. Uh, or whether they made mistakes, almost certainly both are true. The, the fuss about the, the name not being ready in time for local elections, uh, things like that obviously hurt them. Um, but what the the prospects are for them going forward, it, it's really hard to say because, in the short term, it looks like Lib Dems are going to be broadly the centrist party, certainly the sort of pro EU centrist party. Um, the kind of things that I have heard talk about is looking at them more as a movement. I think Anne Subri has, has emerged as a character who's fighting for the need for something new. Um, the question is, what is that movement for that's, that's different from the other parties? And that might be an interesting question to see
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, unfold.
0: Akash, Does the success of two or more centre parties, let's say the Lib Dems and Change UK, does their success depend on the two main parties departing from the centre ground?
1: I think to some extent, yes. I mean, the, the, if, if the Conservatives and Labour um, are moving to, to the extremes and kind of appealing to um, hardliners within their party and so on, um, a normal uh, model of electoral politics would suggest that there's a there's a bigger gap for centrist parties to fill. Um There's also a question about um, coherence and and competence of leadership, this isn't just about um, ideology and I think, you know, Labour, wherever you you might place them on on, on the spectrum and they're obviously kind of uh, divided internally, they they have a problem with... um, with the leadership and with the lack of of message discipline and and, and those kind of issues that I think, you know, end up repelling a lot of voters. The Conservatives have had a huge problem with um, internal civil war within the Cabinet, within the Parliamentary Party, um, that has just made them a very unattractive proposition for most voters, Um, not necessarily because of, you know, where they're perceived to be on an ideological spectrum, but just because of how they are operating as a party or as a government. Um, so, if you ended up with a, a Tory leader with, with, with greater control over the party and projecting a, an, an aura of, of competence to a greater extent, that might start to change. But that has been the position.
2: I think the competence point is really interesting because it seems, on one level, obviously, yes, the two main parties are moved to the extremes of the big gap in the centre, that's the only gap. But actually, going back to what happened to Change UK there would have been a sort of 1st move advantage to someone who is just new, because just generally because of Brexit, regardless of how extreme the main parties are, just being seen as the old system is a big disadvantage these days, or is certainly perceived that way. So a new, fresh thing, that it was just on the basis of being new and having new ideas, could have done well. Um, we haven't got that anymore to educate fail. I think we're going to find out whether that would have been a big thing for a new centrist party.
0: Yeah. I suppose the... Um the qu- related question is, what has the Centre got to offer or got to say, other than being pro-EU? Maybe that's a, is that a question we can answer now, is that something for another day, perhaps? I think it is for another day. Um, I think there's a couple of areas
2: that it uh, needs to think about, and the biggest one for me is the economic policy stuff, and particularly looking at what's happened to the Tories now, looking like they're going to lean hard into the kind of free, yeah. free market, low-tax Singapore on steroids-type stuff, um, and Labour obviously moving hard to the left, what does the, what the moderates say about the economy? And there's a really big choice there about the status quo versus um, uh, what could come next in the sense that the centre used to broadly back in different forms neoliberalism. But neoliberalism was the consensus after the 80s, and now it's framed. Mm. So, where the centre goes with that, I think, is a really, really interesting question.
1: Yes, well, I mean, it, it, it does feel like we're we're back to the '90s, but mm. in a in, in in quite a different way. Because then, of course, it was it was Tony Blair's Labour Party who were triangulating, um, distancing themselves from from the old Labour left um, with higher taxes, nationalisation, and those kind of policies. Of course, being mm. being dropped very successfully by Blair. Um, if Corbyn is moving back in that direction, then and, and the Conservatives are moving to a more Thatcherite, low-tax model, then it feels like on economic questions um, the gap is for a, for a, a Blairite third way kind of party.
2: Yeah, I think that's partly when I was talking earlier about there's this talk of some kind of movement that around Change UK or what they're there for. That's the only thing I can, see them posting, I can see them feeling is having a new narrative around the economy that isn't far left or far right. Um, whether they're going to go there and do that successfully, I'm quite skeptical.
1: Yeah, Pro-market, but pro-investment in public yeah. services, mm. um, having a, a welfare state that is, is well-funded but supports people back into work rather than mm. um, just being a, you know, a trap for people. I mean, that's the kind of territory... Where I, I can see there's a there's 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 an appetite I think among many voters for that kind of narrative.
2: Yeah. The other big issue moving away from economics, I'd mention I think is where we end up with identity politics, mm. and I think this is something that may come across the pond from the US, where I think it is very kind of um, very stark and visceral at the moment. Um, but the the centre of the them, certainly a liberal party, they are, they're quite strong on lots of um, uh, identity politics issues. Whether the centre stays, uh, it was going really to go as far as some of the left in terms of some of those themes which can be portrayed as sort of vengeance politics and stuff. I don't know, and I think that could be an interesting question
1: I think that's yeah I think that's a, a, a big growing area of, um, of political contestation um, and definitely a theme you know worth worth exploring on, on future episodes of this podcast. I mean the one thing I would say is um, Britain often follows as you just sort of implied, Steve, American political trends. And to some extent, we are seeing that. Some of the sort of hardcore identity politics warriors, um, you know, we're seeing some of that emerging um, in debates around free speech and, and, and so on over here. I think the thing we don't have, which is a, a very welcome thing, um, is America's obvious historic uh, yeah. sort of obsession, you know, for some good reasons, with the racial side of that. You know, uh, race, questions of, of, of race are really sort of um, dominant in, in American discourse at the moment in, in a way that I think, you know, thankfully, as I say, are not the case here. Mm-hmm. So that is, yeah, that is a big difference. But we are seeing some of
0: that come over. Thank you very much, Hakesh. Thank you very much Steve, thank you very much for listening uh, I hope you've enjoyed the second episode of No Man's Land podcast um, i be very grateful if you would spread this far and wide please try to uh, uh, let others know about this and thank you very much for listening, goodbye